Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. Alright, welcome everyone. Thanks for listening. The Parsha this week is called Korach. And it is Numbers chapters 16, 17, and 18. I'm going to give a sort of a broad overview, and then we're going to zero in on something quite specific. The reason I'm doing that is in order to talk about abortion rights, which is something that obviously matters in the news right now. And let me just say as an aside that I'm going to be offering a class through my congregation where we explore Jewish sources to see the views about abortion that are in the Jewish sources. It's going to be on July 12th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would welcome any 7-Minute Torah listeners who want to join us. Just send me an email at rabbistreifer at gmail.com, and I'll send you instructions on how to register. And I'll also put that in the episode notes. So let's talk Parsha here. Korach is both the name of this Torah portion and also the name of a person. Korach is a Levite, a member of the priestly tribe, who foments a rebellion, who gathers together a group of rebels against Moses and Aaron. This is one of many rebellions that happened during the book of Numbers. As I mentioned maybe a week or two ago, this book is filled with the Israelites complaining their way through the desert. So without getting into a lot of details, because you can listen to last year's podcast if you want to hear more about Korach, the rebellion gets put down. And through this, it is established that the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses, is to be the priestly family. The Kohanim, the priests of ancient Israel, are understood to be or believed to be descended from Aaron. And because of that rebellion, there is a series of laws and structures that get, that get put into place in the second half of this Parsha in order to establish and strengthen the priesthood. It's worth pointing out here, of course, that Judaism doesn't have priesthood anymore. We have remnants of it. There are special honors given in some synagogues to people who know themselves to be Kohanim. But of course, the ancient priests were responsible for the sacrifice and worship that took place in the temple, and they also were supported by the society. They were essentially a public servant class, and therefore they received support in the form of food and money from the society in return for their service to society. And that's what we read about in the second half of this parsha. What does this have to do with abortion, with reproductive rights? You'll see. Numbers chapter 18 establishes that there's a whole series of what are called truma, or sacred gifts, that would belong to the priests. These are essentially the foodstuffs that Israelites would bring in order to offer to God at the temple. After it was offered, it actually belonged to the priestly families. That's what they would live on. This includes the produce and meat and grain that was part of Mincha and Chatat and Asham offerings, oil, wine, grain, first fruits. 
These kinds of things belonged to the priests. And then in Numbers 18, chapter 19, it says the following, Kol trumot hakodoshim, asher yarimu b'nei Israel ladonai, natati lecha ulvanecha velivnatecha itach. All of the sacred gifts that the Israelites set aside for the eternal, I give to you, the priests, to your sons, to your daughters that are with you. So the Torah has established that these priestly families would receive this truma, these sacred gifts that were brought to the temple. So if you were a Kohen, or if you were what's called traditionally a bat Kohen, a daughter of a Kohen, then you were eligible to eat this truma. This is not an egalitarian system. This is a system where priesthood travels through the men. So the question arises, What are the limits of a bat kohen, the daughter of a kohen, being able to eat this truma? And that is discussed in the Talmud. Now, I want to say I'm not advocating for this. I'm describing it. And I'm describing it very specifically because it's going to teach us something about the Jewish view of the status of a fetus. So stick with me for a moment, please. This is going to get a little technical. The Talmud in Tractate Yevamot establishes that some of the reasons that could disqualify the daughter of a Kohen, or a priestly woman, from being able to eat truma would be marrying a non-Kohen, a non-priest. She loses her priestly status because, as I said, priesthood travels through the male line, as well as pregnancy in some cases, and especially pregnancy with the child of a man who is not a Kohen. And it's in that context that we read the following, Yevamot 69b. The rabbis are talking about what happens if a woman's husband has just died, her non-priestly husband, and she may or may not be pregnant. And Rav Chizda says she immerses and she partakes of truma. That is to say, she is permitted to eat the truma. She's still considered to have priestly status until 40 days. As if she is not pregnant, then she's not pregnant, and she can continue to eat truma. And if she is pregnant, then until 40 days, ad arba'im maya ba'almahi, until 40 days, the fetus is considered merely water. So this requires a little bit of explanation. I warned you this was going to get technical. The question is whether this priestly woman may retain priestly status when she's no longer married to a non-priestly man because he died, but she might be pregnant with his child. And the answer is that for the first 40 days, it doesn't matter because the fetus is not considered as anything other than fluid. And I raise this not in order to talk about priesthood. Priesthood is a whole other discussion. It's an ancient, outdated, hierarchical system where one class of people connected with God on behalf of another class. That's a discussion for a different day. I raise this in order to point out that Jewish law teaches here that a fetus has no status for the first 40 days of pregnancy. It's considered maya ba'alma. It's considered merely water or merely fluid. And that's certainly not the entirety of what Judaism has to say about the status of a fetus. But it does give us a sense here that the Jewish religious framing is very different than 
what's often touted as the religious framing around abortion in the United States, which is to say life begins at conception. That is not the Jewish view. In fact, the Talmud is very clear here that that's not the case. What I don't have time to do here, because we're already at eight minutes, is to give you a detailed explanation of the rest of what Judaism has to say about abortion and reproductive health. But suffice it to say that it is quite complex, that the life of the pregnant person always takes precedence in Jewish law over the status of the fetus, that abortion is permitted and truly sometimes almost required for the well-being of the person carrying the fetus, and that there's weight placed on the, the mental health, the emotional well-being, the toll of pregnancy on the mother in deciding whether she can carry this pregnancy to term. And that's the more detailed discussion that I invite you to join me for on July 12th. And remember, if you're interested, please email me, rabbistreifer at gmail.com. But the bottom line here, and what I think it's possible to say in 7 to 10 minutes, is that Judaism doesn't ban abortion. It is not the case that a religious framing of abortion necessarily declares that life begins at conception and all abortion is murder. That is not the Jewish view, and it is unacceptable for right-wing Christians to attempt to impose their particular view on an entire state or an entire country. It's a violation of religious freedom. It's a violation of basic human rights. Which I suppose brings me back to Korach, the rebel of this week's Torah portion, who claims that his agenda is holiness, while what he's actually trying to do is to gain power, to gain control for himself. We've seen that movie before. We've seen people weaponize religion in order to control and oppress others. This week's Torah portion is a warning against that. It is a reminder that we have an obligation to speak out, to make sure that the vulnerable are not oppressed, that no one tries to control another in the name of their God, and that all of our religious rights and our basic human rights are upheld. That's the world that I think a lot of us would like to see. Judaism still thinks it's possible to create that world. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoy this program, I'd appreciate if you'd leave a review on whatever podcast app you're listening on. You can also join us in our Facebook group, 7-Minute Torah, Listen and Discuss. Please join me again next week as we make modern meaning out of ancient texts.